Thanks for tuning in to the World XP Podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please drop us up, drop a like, and let us know your thoughts below in the comments. Also, please consider supporting our podcast via the link below. It really helps us out. Brandon, welcome to the World XP Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, we've had several conversations, obviously, We've known each other for a little while, but um, we finally found the time to make it happen. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Just uh, chilling out with the birds on a Sunday morning, you know? Yeah, all good things. It's a nice, I don't know, it was hot yesterday. I think it'll probably be a hot one today as well, but that's all right. We can, we'll make it work. So um, for those of us, do you want to go ahead and do like a mini, a little introduction and then we can, then we can jump right into it? Yeah. So uh, I basically, uh, when I was 17, I did about uh, eight years in the army. Um, I got out, I spent a few years going through and doing a little bit of everything in between from selling cars to wine, direct TV subscription, retail, uh, eventually went back to school and and now I started working uh, acquisition support programs for the Marine Corps, which is kind of where I met Eric at. Very nice. So you joined the Army at 17. Is that one of those stories where you lied on your application to, to get in because you have to be 18? No, no. So I actually went into the Army in 2003. Um, and at the time, you could enlist at 17 and a half with your parents' permission. So I actually went through and got my mother's permission to, uh, well, not really her permission, but uh, she gave me permission to go talk to one of the Army uh, recruiters, and I uh, signed up to go airborne infantry right out the gate. And yeah, it kind of just went from there. I actually had my 18th birthday in basic training. I mean, I could imagine better places to have your 18th birthday. <laughs> then, basic, then basic training. So why why the army or why why the military in the first place, and then why the army? So it's a, a kind of a long story, but uh, I went through and when I was younger, I did civil air patrol, and they are the Air Force Auxiliary. Um, I did ground search and rescue. I got to fly airplanes as a kid, and I'm like 13, 14 years old, getting to you know hop inside a Cessna 172 and fly that sucker around. Um, so I kind of started wanting to look into the military and go into the military. When I was really young, we went through and did an encampment down at Fort Bragg, North Carolina in 1999. And that was the first time I actually got to go through and see an airborne operation. We were sitting on the sides. They were throwing airplane or they were throwing vehicles outside of the airplanes. The people started jumping out. I was like, whoa, that looks really, really cool. And I kind of wanted to do that for a while. And then after 9-11 happened, you know, all my buddies, you know, a little bit older than me started going through and signing up. Um, me and a friend of mine, we said, Hey, we're going to go join the Marine Corps. And, uh, another buddy of mine jumped in and said, Hey, I want to join the Marine Corps. And when I started talking to my dad about it, he's a retired Navy chief petty officer. He said, uh, there are a couple things I want you to do. He said, if you're going to join the military for the love of God, don't join the army. And I said, okay. And he said, if you're going to join the army for the love of God, don't join the infantry. I said, okay, sounds great. He said, if you're going to join the Army and the infantry, please don't do airborne. And I said, all right. So that obviously meant that is exactly what I should have done because my dad was steering me away from it at the time. So I knew that was going to be some pretty cool options. But originally, when I actually started sitting down and doing paperwork, all my friends were like, oh, yeah, hey, let's go join the Marine Corps. Let's go join the Marine Corps. Let's go join the Marine Corps. So I said, okay, cool. So I said, all right, sat down did the ASVAB. Well, at the time I had a GED and I was taking uh, classes at Germana Community College. And the Marine recruiter said, listen, I, if I'm going to put you in, I got to have you have 15 college credits. You got to have 15 college credits. I said, okay. 
Well, I also found out that year I was really bad at Spanish. So I go back to the recruiter after failing my Spanish class and say, hey, you know, staff sergeant, I don't have those 15 college credits. I don't need a bonus or anything like that. I just want to get in the Marine Corps. I just want to go through and, and you know, go do my thing with my, my two buddies who are going to go into the Marine Corps as well. He said, sorry, there's nothing I can do to help you. I said, okay. So I went out of the recruiter's office right there on Route 3. And I walked out of the Marine Corps office and I walked right back in to the Army office. And I saw this uh, <laughs> saw this Sergeant First Class. He was sitting there. I'll never forget him because he was kind of kicked back in his chair. And he's like, what's up? And I said, hey, um, you know, hey, Sergeant, I want to uh, I want to look like that guy. And it was a big, huge cardboard cutout of a guy standing there with his parachute on and all of his gear strapped to him and everything like that, getting ready to jump out of an airplane. And I said, I want to do that. He goes, OK. He starts flipping through his paperwork and he said, boom, starts sitting down forms. He's like, fill those things out, fill that out. He's like, how old are you? I was like, you know, 17. He goes, okay, fill that out. And he goes, uh, now your mother's never going to let you join or sign for you to join airborne infantry. So what you need to do is you need to tell her that she's going to do communications or that you're going to do communications. I said, okay, yeah, no problem. So I went through and I, I did that. And he's like, now listen, she's not signing for you to go communications. She's signing for you to go talk to a contract specialist that could potentially get you a contract in communications. So when you walk out, you can have any contract you want once you talk to this guy. And I said, all right, cool, no problem. So I go through my maps, I get my physical, get everything done like that, get signed up. My mom was down there. My recruiter was down there. And I... uh I walked back in, I walked back to talk to the contract guy, typing up my contract, doing my thing. He goes, okay, so you want to go communications? I said, scratch that. I want to go airborne infantry. He's like, okay, all right, there you go. And so I walk out and my recruiter's sitting there, <laughs> my recruiter's sitting there next to my mom and uh, recruiter's like, did you get what you want? I said, yeah. My mom's like, well, what'd you get? I said, airborne infantry. <laughs> and my recruiter just grins. Oh. And my mom's like, well, me and you were going to have a talk tomorrow there, Sergeant. Me and you were going to have a talk tomorrow. And he's like, okay, okay. Well, so she, apparently she had called back the next day and never bothered to tell me, but she called back and he had signed out on his terminal leave that following day, getting out of the army. <laughs> so, like, like it was just straight up, like I was just being 17, young and rebellious and, and wanted to do something that all the cool kids were doing. And I thought, yeah, you know, let me uh, let, let me get to the fight so fast that I'm like airmailed the next day. Um, yeah. And that was kind of that's kind of where I saw it. And then that started me going down to Fort Benning and going to basic training and airborne school. Very nice. So for those listening, you mentioned two things that are acronyms, um, ASVAP and MEPS. Can you describe those for the people listening that have no clue what that is? So, so the ASVAB is the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, if I remember correctly. Uh, knocked in the head one too many times. But uh, that's basically a, a really long test that you take. Uh, I think it's somewhere between 150 and 200 questions. And it just tests what you're good at. You think of like uh, those workplace SMIT tests that you take when you're in, in high school and stuff to say, oh yeah, we think you'd be good at this or we think you'd be good at that. And so they test you on all those things. And with that, you get a score and they say, okay, well, with that score, you can do these jobs, you can do these jobs, you can do these jobs. And so you have to have a certain score to do certain things. And everyone thinks that infantry is actually one of the lowest scores. Um, it's actually not. <laughs> so there are actually jobs 
and professions below that that you know you you can't qualify for infantry if you're if you if you got uh if you got too low of a score and the other one is meps and that's the medical entrance processing station and that's where you basically you go down uh you go down and they give you your physical you do the duck walk you know you captain america where they're going through and they're all standing in line with their shirts off and they're asking them to do stuff and they're checking them out and stamping them with the doctor that's exactly what that is except it's a little bit a little bit more private now the now these days yeah gotcha so okay so you get to fort fort benning um what are you do you know what to expect are you expecting anything are you just so young and dumb that you're just happy to be there what where are you where are you at mentally if you if you remember like what's the situation like so i had because of civil air patrol i did have a little bit of a step up on the mental idea of what basic training was going to be like. I knew that I knew basic training wasn't going to be what the rest of my military time in the military looked like. I knew it was a training. I knew it was a step. I knew it was a phase. And at the time it was a 16 week long phase because the army, you know, everyone in the Marine Corps, they go to one place, they train and then they go to their A school. Well, in the army, it's broken down a little bit differently. You have some people go to basic training and then they go to their follow on job specific training some people have what's called one station unit training. So like all the MPs, they go to an MP school and they spend 16 weeks training with MPs to be an MP. Same thing for artillerymen. Military police, right? Military police, yes. Yeah. Yes. I have to, I have to remember to de-acronym things. Um, and then for infantry, we had one station unit training specifically for infantry. So all my drill sergeants were infantry. All of my, um, all the people that I interacted with on a daily basis, all the people who were teaching me things were infantry. So all of my skills were geared specifically to being an infantryman. And at the time, they were trying something new out. Our company actually had gotten stood up and they specifically stuck everyone who had an airborne contract, a special forces contract, and a uh, a ranger indoctrination process, a RIP contract, to in this one, one station unit, this basic training unit. So all of my drill sergeants were prior 82nd, uh, I think one was 75th Rangement, uh, 75th for a little bit. We didn't have any SF drill instructors, but everything kind of focused around the fact that, hey, we were going to be going to airborne school. So we did a lot more running. We did a lot more um, rucking and we did a lot more like, okay, let's get ready to actually, we did a lot more pull-ups than some of the other people. And they actually stood that company up just to see what happened. And then took it right back down. So it was fun because we had all brand new gear, stuff right out of the packaging. Um, but then at the end of it, we had to turn everything back in, spick and span. So we spent all the final weeks after we've done all of our or all of our uh, final testing and stuff, just cleaning everything because they were going to just turn it back over. So, <laughs> oh, that's crazy. That they made you, I mean, I guess it makes sense that they make you clean everything back off. Um, okay, so you, you're going through your basic sort of basic things, running, pull-ups, etc. Are you, um, are they like sleep depriving you, starving you? I, I had a army ranger on a, a long <laughs> while back and he was like, there's one week where they just like don't let you sleep. And then the, um, things like that is like they don't feed you. And then the other thing he said was, in ranger school there's a lot of trade-offs where like maybe somebody is more physically fit but they 
need a little help writing like a tactical plan so people will help each other out it's like he'll somebody will carry an extra bag in exchange for some help on something else and is that the case in and as it goes throughout like basic training or is that more specific to once you get into the specialized areas so one of the things to keep in mind like one i never went to ranger school um so i i don't have that full i know a lot of people went to ranger school i talked to them about it i don't have that firsthand experience um yeah, there were times where, where for someone coming in, you know, basic training is is a huge stretch of your limits. You're trying to go through, you're not getting as much sleep as you used to when you're a civilian. You're not getting as much time off as you are getting a civilian. Um, now, again, things are different. Um, when I was going in, we didn't have smartphones. We did, The only way we could communicate with our families was letters and payphones. Um, you know, now... You get people who are making TikTok videos inside the inside the barracks. So I don't really can't really attest to what it is like now. But when you go through and you look at basic training for for that time in my life, you know, that was really hard. That was really tough aspect. Excuse me, tough aspect. You know, yeah, we were going through and we were not sleeping. We were going through and saying, hey, yeah, if building teamwork and building camaraderie. Um and, and at that time, you know, you meet these people and you're like, yeah, we're going to be buddies forever. And then you move on and you get to your unit and then you go do something even harder. Um, you wind up doing an appointment with people and, and those become like your new basic training buddies because you've kind of shared that kind of experience together. And when you have those advanced schools like Special, For uh, Special Forces, uh, Ranger School, um, you know, some of the airborne school, not putting it on par with ranger school or special work, those, those follow-on schools, you typically have people who are more seasoned in their career. So they're learning those ways and they already know some of those ways to say, Hey, I'm a little tired. Can you take over? Hey, you know, these are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. You know, whereas in basic training, you're all finding out what your weaknesses are together and your strengths are together. So it's kind of, um, you know, yeah, it is, it is a challenge. Um, but I don't think it's one of those huge attrition rates that you see in like special forces or, or Rangers or seals or anything like that. So it's basic training. I believe is something that most people could do if they set their minds to it. Interesting. Okay. So you get through basic training and it's hard, but it's okay. And you get through it and then you go to airborne school after, or what's the timeline like after that? So, and also, and also what, what's the mood like within basic training? Cause it's, what when is it early 2003 so this is early 2003 so, so 9 11 has just happened 9 11 uh, has just happened have we invaded iraq yeah so we we went through um 9 11 happened in 2001 we invaded afghan and uh into iraq earlier in 2002 if i remember early 2000 or late 2002 2003 um interesting enough the unit that i got assigned to the 173rd stationed out of Italy, um, had just done their jump into Iraq earlier in 2003. So I was in this unit that I was in this basic training thing that was like, hey, we're training airborne uh, SF dudes and Ranger dudes, you know, got kids who are all wanting to go to these units. And they're like, guys, you have to understand your sixth jump could be a jump into a combat zone. You know, so it was very much like, you know, hey, we're getting out of basic training and, and no joke, within months, we could get orders and we could wind up being in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, or who only knows what. Uh, so we were all very, I'd say like a lot of us were very motivated, um, very much 
understanding that that could be a possibility. So, you know, had a lot of people going through working out um, in their off time, studying things in their off time. You know, it was one of those things where our drill sergeants always told us, like, you don't have the ability to be a novice anymore. If you pick up a weapon system, you need to know it in and out and upside down so that if something goes wrong with it, you can fix it. You know, whether it's in pitch black or day or underwater, you just don't know. So everyone had this kind of, well, most everyone, we did have some people go through and, and wash out, uh, leave. Some people just go through and say, hey, this is not for them. We had we had one guy, man, I felt so bad for him. He uh, he got to basic training, got to basic training, started sending letters home, started not getting any responses home, went AWOL, oh, went AWOL boy. in the night, which is absent without leave, and then came back like three weeks later. And we're like, what on earth happened? Well, come to find out, his parents dropped him off, like dropped him off, changed their address and left no forwarding address. What the hell? <laughs> everyone was like, are you serious, man? So, you know, it was, it was one of those things like, you know, the crazy things like that happen. Um, you know, so, and, and that's how we kind of took him in and everyone kind of started helping him out a little bit more and he made it through. I don't know what happened to him. You know, I hope he's doing well, um, living his best life, but, uh, you know, we were all very un- under the impression that anything could happen. That sucks. Yeah um that's wild okay okay so you get out of basic school you're in the airborne you're in the airborne school and they're like hey by the way airborne school people your sixth jump could be into combat zone and everybody's like hell yeah is that basically what 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 happened yeah that's that's kind of the mentality that a lot of people had um everyone was kind of like yeah hey let's do this because uh, so airborne school was my first opportunity to really act interact with people who had been in the military for a little bit. So they they do have some some people. I went straight from basic training. I spent three weeks kind of in a holding platoon full of basic training people who weren't smart enough to be left on their own, but uh, they they needed Sounds some adult right. supervision, you know. And we went through and we got shoved into airborne school before we actually went to our units. And I got to meet some people, some guys who were doing pararescue. Um, they were in the pararescue course, um, our pipeline, uh, some people who were in the SEAL pipeline, um, people who were in the combat controller pipeline, uh, people who had just gone through and gotten airborne school because they were re-enlisting, um, just people from all over different areas of the career. And it was really kind of awesome because I was like, okay, well, now I get this opportunity to talk to these people and be like, hey, what's like life like on the outside? Um, but you also had that kind of those culture crass, culture clashes, like the, uh, the SEAL guys that were like, Hey, yeah, we're, we're in the pipeline. We're like done this, that, and the other. They're like, Oh yeah. Hey, come hang out with us for a little bit. Hey, you want to do a workout? Yeah, sure. And they're like, all right, well, we're going to go do a six mile run. So do a six mile run. I'm like, all right, well, that was, that was really good. They're like, no, 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 that was just a warm up. <laughs> like, oh, okay, now we're going to go do a pull, some pull-ups. All right. So we like, well, we're going to do a hundred pull-ups. All right. So we <laughs> Break it into sets. By like thirty, I was like, "No, I'm done." They're like, "Come on, man, this is just the warm up." Wait, the the six mile run and the hundred pull ups is still just the warm up. I don't even want to see the workout. Oh <laughs> um, my god! So so those guys were were pretty crazy. And then there's all there's all these stories that float around, and you always have to wonder if they're true. Like we had uh, so airborne schools broken down into three weeks. 
and I can I can get into that if, if yeah 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 for sure. So the first week is is considered what's called ground week, where you start learning um, how a parachute works, every all the equipment in it, everything like that, and learning how to fall. Which ironically, I never thought I'd need to be taught how to fall, but falling is something that the army teaches you to do very very well, especially in airborne school. And so you do what's called a when you hit the ground, you're going about. 15 20 miles an hour so it feels like you've just been hit by a car mm -hmm. uh, so you have to fall the right way and you do a, a parachute landing fall and so you spend that first week learning how your equipment works how to exit an aircraft and how to fall out of uh, fall when you hit the ground and then the second week you have what's called tower week and that's when you start jumping out of an air or out of a mock c-130 door or mark c-17 door where you're basically about 34 feet up above the ground you're strapped to a zip line, you're in a parachute harness, so you jump out and you slide down the zip line. And the reason that they chose 34 feet is they go through and they say at 34 feet, that's when your brain perceives the most amount of threat and the most amount of danger, because you know, it's high enough that you're going to fall and it's going to hurt. <laughs> you know, it's not going to kill you instantly. It's going to hurt. So they say that's when the brain perceives the most danger and so that's why it's at 34 feet. So you spend a week doing that. You also, they have uh, these huge drop towers where they just take you up about 200 feet in the air. You have a parachute attached to it and it lets go and you just kind of float down. Um, and those have been around, actually, they started off as a carnival ride at a World's Fair in like 1911, uh, 19, early 1900s. And there's all these stories that float around about how, oh, yeah, it's closed down because some Navy SEALs climbed up there and started doing pull-ups off the 200-foot tower, you know, <laughs> and, and like, okay, or, or these. They, they might have. They, they might have, you know, um, or how combat controllers were going through and, and cutting their static lines and throwing static lines to the jump masters. And the static line is a part that actually hooks up to the airplane that pulls your chute out. So they'd send a, a broken static line and then jump out and then pull their secondary chute. For whatever and, and stories like that always float around i never saw any of that personally but um but then the third week sorry if i'm going all over the no place. no you're good you're good you're good tbi the tbi kicking in um but the third and final week is when you actually go through and you actually uh do your five jumps that certifies you as an army parachutist so you do your five jumps you have two what's called hollywood jumps where you're not jumping with any combat equipment and then you have three, at the time we did three um, night jumps that were with combat equipment. And, you know, the first time you go jumping out of an airplane is not the scariest time. It's the second time. <laughs> you know, the second time doing it, I like doing something that's by far probably the scariest because you kind of know what to expect. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember the first time I was going up out of the, going up out of the airplane I'd gotten in the chute. I was all ready to go. I thought I was going to like, you know, knock this out of the park. I'm like going down the line. I pass off my, uh, my static line and I turn, I line up in the door and I just kind of freeze and I just stop. And I'm like, Oh God. Okay. Cause I did all the things I wasn't supposed to do. I looked straight down at the ground. I was like, yeah, yeah this is going to happen. And the jump master's like, go. And I'm like, eh. I did like this little teeny <laughs> tiny hop. And he's like, go and I did another little teeny tiny hop again and he's like go and when I did that final teeny tiny hop he kicked me 
And I just felt straightforward. And uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, man. And of course, because of that happened, my feet got sent uh, straight back, pointed straight back at the airplane. And I could have swore I saw the jump master being like, bye, I'll be hanging out the side of it. Probably. So and then the second time, <clears throat> the second time uh, I was going up there, I did more like this little shuffle kind of towards the door and actually got sucked out of the airplane because when you get uh, in a C-130, the way the air comes over the door, it actually creates this little lip where if you get close enough to it, it'll just suck you right out. Um, so <laughs> after the second time, I was pretty good. I started having some pretty good exits afterwards. I was like, all right, so run up to the door, jump out of it. Because after you get out of it, you get out of the airplane, you get like this four second little free fall. Your chute opens up, the plane's flying away. It's like totally quiet. You're hearing like, you're hearing the stretches of the, of the P cord, the 550 cord that's attached to your parachute. You know, you're hearing people hit the ground. You've got just enough time to go like, oh man, this is actually really cool. Especially at night or like just in the morning when there's like sunrise or sunset. Uh, you're like, wow, this is really cool. Oh, wow, I need to do something before I land. Uh, and then you get into your position to land and then you just wham into the ground and you lay there for a second and you catch your breath. <laughs> so that's wild. It's how, are you, how are you supposed to fall properly when they teach you? So when you fall, what you're what you're aiming for is you want the balls you, you basically you pull yourself into a position where you're kind of shaped a little bit like a banana. You keep your feet knees together. You have the balls of your feet hit the ground. And then you want to roll so that you send the shock of the force up your leg, along your calf, thigh, uh, buttocks, and then up through your lat. And then if you do it right, you'll hit, you'll roll, and you'll come all the way over, and it'll just send the shock straight through you. So you're actually hitting and rolling. Sideways. And sideways. Yeah, you want to try to go for that sideward, sideways angle so that you're not like trying to absorb all the impact on your feet um, so that you can go through and, and be up and moving quickly to get to the fight, your rally point and everything like that. And I think a lot of people, when they think jumping out of an airplane, they think skydiving. And that's when you have a different style shoot, the big arch shoot with the things and you steer and you flare out and you land kind of nicely. Um, the shoots we were jumping, they were called the... Was it the dash 10? Yeah, there was a dash 10. It's just this big round chute. You don't really have any way to steer it. And the only way that you go through and you make it move is you actually pull the chute down some, which is why we did all the pull-ups. You pull down on the chute and that causes air to spill out the other side of the chute and kind of gently pushes you along, kind of like a giant jellyfish. So. Yeah, that's crazy. So it's not, you don't have as much uh, control, I guess, then i mean you do uh you do to a certain extent but also well i guess you don't want to be seen by things so no bright colors and and the rest of it yeah so the idea is is that there's not a lot of bright colors to it there's not a lot of um the brightest color on your parachute that we had was the uh pool cord the mm -hmm. pool cord was a dark red or a red color so that yeah. you could find it at night if you needed to um, and, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was, the idea is, is to get you to the ground as quickly as possible, um, with little to no injury. 
<laughs> little to no. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So so you you do your five jumps and mm-hmm. you get sucked out of the plane and so now you are officially what not licensed. You graduate airborne school. So yeah. So I graduate airborne school. Um. I graduate airborne school and uh, we actually did what's called port call and port call is when um port call is when they go through and they basically say hey if you're going overseas you need to go through and you need to to report i'm like okay cool and you find out all your port call information where you're flying out of where you're going to all your orders and things like that now i first got my orders when i was in um first got orders when i was in my basic training and uh, my orders were to go to the 173rd in Italy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I don't want to go to Italy. I wanted to go to the 82nd Airborne Division, you know, the the really like the the poster child for like cool army stuff. Yeah. And so I remember I actually went to my drill sergeant. I said, hey, you know, drill sergeant, I want to volunteer. You know, I don't, I don't want like my orders. What can I do to uh, to, to get out of my orders and, and maybe go someplace else? Can I volunteer for Ranger? Can I volunteer for this? And, and by the way, I was in much better shape than I am right now. Um, can I can I volunteer for any of these things? And he's like, well, I was sitting in his office. He was across the office. And he's like, well, well, where are your orders to there, son? And I said, Italy, drill sergeant. And he came up out of his chair. And he popped me over the back of the head so quick. And I was like, oh, my God, what happened? Because, you know, everyone, everyone hears stories of, like, drill sergeants, you know, knocking people senseless. And at this time, our drill sergeants are really scary people, but we've never just seen them like flat out cold cock someone. But he smacked me upside the the, the head like I was his kid. Um, and he's like, listen here, kid. He's like, go to Italy, have fun, and you'll be good to go. He's like, ranger school's not going anywhere. Special forces school aren't going anywhere. There are people who spend their entire careers trying to get an overseas duty station. Go to Italy, have fun. I said, all right. Then my orders changed to go to Fort Bragg when I first got to airborne school. So in my ground week, I got new orders to go to Fort Bragg. And I was like, okay, cool. I can live with that. And then they started calling off names for port call for all these people going overseas. And they're like, you know, going down the list, you know, Anderson, you know, Michaels, you know, and they go white, uh, Anthony. And I'm like, okay. And then a white Brandon, 6295. I'm like, okay, you know, my line number. All right. Well, so I go running up there. I'm like, all right, what, what's, what's going on here? And they're going down the line. They're going down the line. And they're, they start saying, um, like the first person, they're like, Korea, 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 Korea. Like this entire line of probably about 20 people uh, was getting sent to Korea. And they got to me and he goes, white Korea. And he's like, wait a minute. Are you white Anthony or white Brandon? I said, I'm white Brandon. He goes, oh. White Anthony, Korea. White Brandon, you're going to Italy. Korea, 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 all down the line. So like, all right, well, that's it. I'm like, uh, line of about 19 dudes just turns and looks at me who all got sent to Korea. They're just mad because I'm actually going to Italy. Um, So I got that port call and then headed to Italy a few months later. How was was Italy? What was like, was there a gap time you said a few months later you went so what did you well, do in, so in the meantime or it was actually probably it was probably a few weeks um i know i, I went home um on leave for a little bit and then i went to uh 
went to Italy um, a couple weeks later after my transitional leave and then showed up at, at my duty station. I actually showed up at my duty station when the entire rest of the unit was on their post-deployment leave. So mm. when everyone came back from their post-deployment leave, I was like this super new guy <laughs> who hadn't been around for any of the, the deployment they had just gotten back from. Yeah. Oh, so how was, so how was Italy then? So you spend the first couple of weeks as the only guy in there and what are you doing in, in, in that time? So I, uh, I wish I had spent more time actually listening to people and traveling and uh, seeing some more of the sites and doing some more of the things. But I, I mean, I was doing what any 18 year old, 19 year old would do in a country that you could drink and go to clubs and all those things. I did do, do some sightseeing and some touristy stuff. Um, you know, I went to Rome, saw some of those things, took advantage of some of the MWR trips, uh, morale, welfare, and recreation. They host uh, different trips to, uh, from rock climbing to bicycling. Um, you know, but a lot of what I did is a lot of, of in my time off, um, just kind of hanging out with the guys, you know, whatever club we went to, whatever bar we went to, uh, whatever thing we kind of decided to do that weekend, whether it was go to Rome, um, go to uh, Yezalu Beach, some of the places around there. <clears throat> and then at work, you know, as an infantry guy, uh, you woke up in the morning, you clean stuff, clean <laughs> whatever it is that needed cleaning for the day. Um, and then you practiced whatever technique, drill, um, anything like that, that came up or was on the rotation for training, um, physical fitness, you know, we do combatives, we do, uh, weight training, we do running. And so being in Italy, our base was small. You know, if you wanted to run, if you wanted to run five miles, you had to do two laps around the base. That's how small it was. Uh, so we would actually, every few months, we would go up to Germany for two or three weeks. And that's where we would do all of our actual like maneuver training and, live fire exercises and shoot houses and, and all those other things. Um, again, I don't know how big the base is now over there because it's been almost two decades since I've been there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but this was around 2004 when I actually got into, uh, into Italy and we were there. I was in Italy for about three months before we came down on orders to say, Hey, we're going to go to Afghanistan um, in 2005. And we were going to do a year deployment in 2005 from 2005 to 2006 and be in Afghanistan. So gotcha. So these all these guys had this what they were they were gonna go on their second deployment then. So when you're there in Italy, are you basically is everyone just in a holding pattern because we're in wartime and basically we're just basically waiting to get sent to wherever it was? So so that's kind of a um you know everyone kind of thinks that uh have you ever seen the movie Soldier with Kurt Russell? Mm -mm. Now I'm starting to date myself, man. So there's this movie, um, it's, it's Sergio, uh, called Soldier, it's with Kurt Russell. And when they're not training and when they're not, you know, learning or eating, they're just sitting on their bunk ready and, and waiting to go. It's not what it was at all. <laughs> no. Um, well, not not that, obviously, but like mindset-wise. Mindset-wise, once we once we got orders, you know, we, we were told, hey, we're going to go to Afghanistan. Um, and we got kind of a time frame date. We all knew it was kind of Afghanistan, so we started shifting our training style to going to Afghanistan. We started doing a lot more rucking, uh, mm -hmm. which is carrying all your equipment, going wherever wherever you can go. Started trying to do a lot more altitude, like 
all right, we're going to run up this hill as fast as we can, um, start doing a lot more things like that. And, and that's kind of where our training and our mindset shifted from, okay, how do we, you know, how do we be kind of a little good at, at everything? How do we kind of be familiar with everything to how do we go through and how do we be really good in this environment that we're going to, um, you know, we, um, we never really had a period of time where we're, we were really worried about getting called up because we weren't on, um, we weren't on a response status. Like we were never, never really. Told. I mean, so when you're, when you're in the military, uh, at least when I was in, in the army, you had, um, zones that you could go to. And like, if you had a three day weekend or a four day weekend, you had about a hundred mile radius around base that you could get to without putting in for uh, a pass, which is basically a piece of paper that you submit to your commander and you say, Hey, I want to go to this beach or this place with these people. We're going to go here. And then we're going to be back by this point in time. And they can either approve it or deny it. You know, if you have dumb plans like, Oh yeah, Hey, uh, I'm going to go to Amsterdam by myself this two-day weekend i'm gonna hop on this flight and we'll be back they'd be like yeah no that's not gonna happen but if you and your buddies were like hey we're gonna go spend our four-day weekend down in rome we're gonna um you know these people are gonna go we're gonna take this train we're gonna stay at these hotels and then we're gonna travel back we'll be back at this point in time they'll be like yeah sure no problem gotcha okay so you get orders to go to afghanistan and then and then what you have like like how does it how does it work you get the piece of paper they're sending you to xyz place and then do you have sort of missions already that you're going on or is it like how are you just going and then once you get there then people are going to tell you what's going on yeah so so that's kind of how it went for for most of my deployments um was we know we're going to go there we're going to figure out what's going on there um, and then we're gonna figure out what I need, what we need to do. So just like, and, and what's cool is I, I didn't really realize that's what we were doing at the time, but a lot of the things that I learned later on after I got out of the army and I started going to school and I started learning about, um, organizational change and bringing about change and, and, and building teams and things like that. We would go into an area, we would do uh, right seat rides that we call them with the unit that was getting ready to leave we see how they're doing things what threats they have what relationships they've built and then we would slowly integrate some of our own objectives or whatever objectives had changed from higher down into that kind of thing like obviously we know as infantry guys we're probably going to be kicking down some doors at some point in time we're probably going to be doing some long maneuvers over time we know we're going to be doing overwatch which is basically just sitting there watching something for a long period of time seeing if something happens those are things that we know. This exact specifics of it, we all hash out when we get there. Um, and and it changes. You know, I, when we were in Afghanistan, we got to a base and they said, hey, we want to go build this base out in the middle of nowhere um, and get a, a foothold over in that area. So we shifted gears and one of our platoons, uh, we went out to that area and we started building up this base in the middle of nowhere. And literally it was a, a all right, put a truck there with a machine gun on it, put a truck there with a machine gun on it put a truck there with a machine gun on it, put a truck there with a machine gun on it, find your hole and we'll start digging in the morning. Um, and that's kind of, that was a three month time that we spent building up the area, filling it full of, of HESCO walls, which is basically a steel cage with fabric that's filled up with dirt um, to give you some ballistic protection. 
And we spent about three months doing that. And it's like, okay, hey, we've got this place established. We've got this built. Now we're going to start rotating people out through it. Now we need to come back to this one area and we need to work on this other project. One of the other projects that was going on at the time is uh, one of the one of the towns wanted to build a um, a road, like a cobblestone road. And we actually taught the locals how to build a cobblestone road with the materials that they had available, not provided by the U.S. military, so that they could go through and they could actually increase um, traffic in and out of this area, so that they could start moving commerce, so that they could actually increase. Uh, the traffic in the area and, and increase just everything going on in the area. Was combat kind of d dying down by the point that you got there or was it still pretty heavy in 05? So, so the thing is, 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 you know, it's not a call of duty video game. Like, of course it's like, you know, not, not all the time. There were times when, yeah, you know, we were in, you know, we were in contact and we had uh, firefights going on. You know, sometimes we could go a couple weeks, maybe a month or two without anything happening. Um, sometimes it would be uh, a couple of days um, where we were at in Afghanistan. And the other thing is that different places in Afghanistan were all experiencing different things. And, and you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I was not down here where we were in contact every single day for, for the fighting season. Um, and then I was not like up here where we weren't doing anything. Um, there's actually, have you ever heard of documentary, a documentary Restrepo? Mm -hmm. I haven't watched it, but I've, I've heard of it. So, so that movie or that documentary was actually done on second battalion five Oh, uh, second battalion five Oh third. I remember it, they may have redesignated at that time. That was my brigade's second battalion. That was in there. They had some of those things. I'm not going to tell you that's what our deployment was like <laughs> um, because it was a little bit different. We didn't have some of the the hardships they had to go through, um, but everyone's experience was a little bit different. In Afghanistan at the time, there was a definitely a season where things started to ramp up. Um, it got really cold. You had like two, three feet of snow on the ground. No one wants to fight cold weather, <laughs> especially an enemy that that doesn't have that. Um, so things would start to thaw, you know, rains would start happening, things would start happening, it would kick up a little bit more in this, their spring, their summer. Um, and then in the fall, it would kind of die out a little bit. So that was kind of that rotation. And, and when we got there, we got there in um, like the tail end of their winter. Um, it was kind of funny because we're standing around, there's like three feet of snow on the ground and we're all in desert camouflage. <laughs> um, so we're like, this is a little crazy. Um, so, you know, a lot of times things would be sometimes contact, you know, with, with people would maybe last 45 minutes, sometimes hour and a half, depending on where you were just because of, of the scenario. Other times, you know, people take pop shots at you and then it's like, okay, you know, clearly this guy is just trying to take pop shots at us and, and you move on. What is it, what is it like when you, you hear the shot, like, I've seen like the terrain and various videos and documentaries and, and stuff. And it seems often like you would have to figure out you being the U S military would have to figure out where things were coming from. 
did that was that a thing for you guys what was that like initial first couple seconds where you're like trying to sort through and get your bearings on on all that stuff and then set up however you guys needed to set up to not just be in the open like did you have situations like that yeah so and 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 i'll go through and i'll I'll share some of the stuff that i'm comfortable sharing um some stuff there's there's (laughs) pieces of paper signed that you know you can't talk about or of course of course um, so I know one of the, uh, and it's actually funny you bring this up, um, because I was asked a very similar question when I was going for my degree, I was in a, uh, ethical leadership class and they were talking about, um, Pat Tillman, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. passed away. and I was actually, I'm, I, I did not know Pat Tillman. I did not work with his unit and I'm not going to claim any of that at all, but I was in Afghanistan fighting in the same kind of environment when he actually, um, died in combat so that environment is incredibly confusing you know you go through if you're in a mountain have you ever you ever go into a a, a warehouse and clap your hands and you get the echo all over the place Mm -hmm. so um if go into if you if you kind of want to feel what it's kind of like um, the marine corps museum in virginia around quantico has the uh north korea um the korean war exhibit and there's a part where you go through. Have you ever been there? Yeah, a few years ago. So, so there's a part that that uh, when you walk through, um, you hear the the guns, the shots going off. But the real thing that gets you is just the zips. When you hear those zip, 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 you know, those are the rounds. And typically, what it is, you hear the zip, and then you start hearing the gunshots. And the problem that you have is that when you're in Afghanistan, especially in the mountain areas everything echoes. So if you don't know where your people are, you don't know if they're shooting. Sometimes if it's incoming, you have this, this. And I remember one point in time, we were actually in contact. We were getting shot at. We didn't even realize we were getting shot at until an RPG blew up right next to us. Um, So fortunately, no one, no one got hit, you know, no major injuries or anything like that. Uh, But it was so confusing at one point in time. And, uh, at one point in time, we were all shooting in the direction that we thought we were getting shot at from, um, but no one could actually see anything. So we, we didn't actually have eyes on any target. And so we were just kind of shooting in that direction, shooting in that direction. And we had one dude, he was a, a sniper. He was one of the scouts and he couldn't see anything that was going on. He couldn't get a fixed target with anything in his scope. So he just set his, his, rifle down drew his pistol and just started shooting in the direction that he thought and like just jumped out and started shooting at it and we're like what are you doing and he's like ah they're shooting at me and we're like no crap we're all getting shot at man like what's what's going on with that um and so and like and then in the middle of this firefight like everyone just took this brief second pause to laugh at this dude who was like ah i'm getting shot at and we're like yeah no shit we're all getting shot at and it just picks right back up. And, and, and that is one of those really crazy times. And, and, and again, no one got hurt during that time period. Um, it was one of those things where just everything kind of lined up and everyone missed at that point in time. So um, no one hit us and, and we don't know if we hit anyone, <laughs> but uh, we, know, we know we made it out of there. So uh, it's one of those crazy things that happened. Is that a situation where you're basically just trying to get out of just get out and get everyone out? 
because if you if you can't see anyone, like you also don't want to walk yourself into where they're shooting at you from, especially if you don't know. So how do you sort through that? So again, at the time, I was not the leader in that organization. I was a PFC. Yeah. So those kinds at that point in time, I was not the one making the decisions. I was not the one making the calls. And we did a couple things. We tried moving some position around to try to get better, better angles on things. And and we couldn't eventually like what we did is we basically we held our position until we got air support. And once we had air support from A10s, that's when we knew they had eyes on the people and we actually were pinning them down just as much as they were pinning us down. And then fortunately, our A-10s could come in and just take care of uh, take care of business. Um, and in that situation, so I was during that that situation, I was a, a private first class. I was a uh, assistant gunner and an ammo bearer. And my job was to make sure that the machine gun constantly had ammunition. That was my sole purpose in life. Make sure the machine gun did not run out of bullets. And Later on, I started getting really into the thought process of it because I know at the time, like I couldn't recall anything. I like stuff started happening. And the next thing I know, I'm just like feeding up ammunition into this, this 240 and my gunner's just, you know, rocking it. Um, and uh, he like afterwards, we sat down, everything kind of quieted out. You know, Aitens came through, I lit up a cigarette and I started smoking it. And then afterwards, I started going through and recalling everything. And uh, there was a uh, read some some articles and stuff on it, and like your brain actually shuts down in those kinds of situations and starts just reverting back to your basic level of training. So at that point in time, my training for that time was follow instructions from my platoon sergeant and my squad leader, my NCOs, and get ammo into the machine gun. And for some reason that actually transferred over to me just getting ammo to anyone. And when people started going through and being like, yo, Hey, I'm, I'm low on ammunition in my M4. I started flinging extra magazines that we actually had from the truck over at them. Be like, yeah, you know, and by the time it was all said and done, I realized the only ammunition I had left was the ammunition in my rifle. I had flung ammunition to everyone else who was actually going through and laying down suppressed fire. And I never even fired a single shot because my job was to feed ammunition into the machine gun and keep keep the gunner having that ammunition. And, you know, I, I focused in on that. And that was one of those things where, you know, everyone else's job was to do something different. And each person focused on their job. And that's really the whole way that we were able to make out of it. Um, You're the Oprah of ammo. <laughs> yeah, you get a magazine. You yeah. get a magazine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the 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 Oprah of ammo. That's I uh, never heard that one before. That was that was kind of funny. <laughs> uh, I do my best. Okay, so you're there for a year. How many times? How many times? Or how many deployments did you have? So I went to I went to Afghanistan from 05 to 06. and then I went to got back from Italy. Um, I got I <laughs> I married I married a girl. And then got divorced or started the divorce process like a couple weeks later. It was very, very terrible. Um, well, not terrible, just not the best. But um, did that. And then um, when I got back from the Afghanistan deployment, I got orders to go to Fort Bragg. And then at Fort Bragg, I went through, got there, spent a few months uh, transitioning in, and then redeployed to 
Iraq from 06 to 07. And in 07 is when I got hit by an IED um, and an improvised explosive device. My vehicle was hit by an IED. I was medevaced out. And then we redeployed. I was back from back in country, well, back in the United States from 07 to 08. Yeah. And then from 08 until 09, I believe it was 08 to 09. Um, I was back in Iraq. So in total, I did three deployments, two to Iraq, one to Afghanistan. How different was Iraq to Afghanistan? Completely different. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was, it was like nine days. So when we were in Afghanistan, um, a lot of times we were doing missions that would last four days at a time. Um, we would go through and we would, we were in very uh, mountainous wooded environments, very little, the, the towns that we came across, typically one story mud huts, um, maybe a two story structure. And we did a lot of, of packing things on our back and being there for, you know, being out for like a week at a time. Um, when we got to Iraq, a lot of IEDs, a lot of flat open terrain, not a lot of position to maneuver people around um, covertly. So our missions got a lot shorter, maybe 24, 48 hours, depending on where, and this is just where we were, not how everything was in the entire rest of the, the, the area. Right. Um, so our mission duration got a lot shorter uh, and how we moved and operated was a lot different. We did a lot of moving in helicopters and a lot of moving in um, vehicles to do short operations with very specific intents. Um, and then my last deployment, we were actually in uh, Baghdad around Sadr City. Um, so missions became even very like way shorter. Uh, typically, you know, we would go through, we would say, hey, we're going to go do Overwatch. I think one of the longest missions we were on was for 48 hours. Um, and basically, we just we infiltrated into a building. We sat up and we watched another building for about two days. And then we or exfilled out of it. Mm -hmm. So. Do you want to talk about the IED or you don't want to? Oh, I love talking about the IED. Okay, go. So what, ha so, so what happened? So, so I actually, um, and, and the reason why I can talk about it now is it was one of those things where um, the stars aligned perfectly and I walked away with the worst of the injuries, well, hobbled away with the worst of the injuries and I had a fractured kneecap and trap and shrapnel in my patella. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, shrapnel on my ankle and fra fractured my patella. So, you know, we, we were able to walk away with that. We were very, very lucky. And the reason we were able to walk away from that um, is about two weeks prior, our Humvee had just been upgraded with um, reinforced firewall and reinforced armor, uh, <laughs> which um, is pretty much the reason that we were able to go through and, and survive that explosion. Um, so basically, so as it's, it's absolutely crazy day. Um, so, when I was there, there was the whole surge getting ready to happen. Okay. Um, surge had just kind of started kicking off and we were supposed to be there for 12 months. Well, in this 24 hour time period, we got told our 12 month deployment was going to get shortened to a nine month deployment and that we were going to be home soon. Sweet. Um, called up the girl I was dating at the time, told her that. Um, then we went through and got word that our 12 month deployment had been extended out to a 15 month deployment. 
no, or 16 month deployment. We're like, no, this is bad uh, or not. 18, whatever a year and a half was. Yeah, 12 18, plus six is 18. 18, yeah. yeah. So then we got told it was going to get extended out to an 18-month deployment. It's like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So then, um, yeah, so I went, told this girl, hey, I'm going to be home soon. Went out on a mission, came back, found out something different was going to happen. We're going to be out for 18 months. Said, yeah, hey, um, going to be gone for 18 months instead of the, the nine. Sorry about that. <clears throat> we go back out on another mission. And this has just been a chaotic day because we had two other Humvees break down. And when a Humvee breaks down, like, it's not like, oh, no, we need to, to do something really quick. It's like the tire fell off of it. <laughs> um, and it doesn't fall off of it when it's sitting there not doing anything. It falls off of it when you're driving down the road at about 20 miles an hour and you just. <laughs> so uh, we were going through, we were driving along this place that uh, we'd known there had been IEDs before. Um and so we were always a little bit more cautious of that area. So we'd actually, we'd slow down a little bit. We actually flipped everything to white light. So normally we were driving around with, with night vision on, rolling, um, rolling dark so no one could see where we were at. This time uh, we wanted to go through and, and see if we could see anything beforehand. Uh, that did not actually work out. Uh, we were cruising along and we had been having problems with our Humvee periodically throughout the day where the generator would just kind of stop kind of working. So we'd start losing power in the Humvee. So I figured out that if I just put it in neutral and turned it off and back on again and did a rolling start, it would take care of it. So I go through, I'm rolling along. It's like 11 o'clock at night and uh, <laughs> start having these generator problems. I put it in neutral and I flip the switch to turn it off <laughs> and the timing like, honestly, I'm pretty sure the dude had a camera because when I flipped it back to on, that's when the Humvee blew up. And so for a split second, I thought I had caused the Humvee to explode. And so I panicked. I was like, good God, we just threw a tie rod. We just had the engine blew up. I freaking caused some type of major damage. Um, and then once the smoke actually started clearing and and... I could actually see kind of what was going on. And I looked out and, and could see that there was no front of the Humvee. I was like, oh man, we've just been hit. Um, so my, uh, my TC, my truck commander, my squad leader, he was next to me. He was passed out. Uh, we were able to check over him. He wasn't bleeding. He was good to go. He was just unconscious. I checked my gunner out. My gunner went through. He had no major injuries, just a little bit of peppering. Um, but he kept complaining. He's like, I can't get, I can't get the 50 cal to work. I can't get the 50 cal to work. And I was like, well, Howard, you're not going to get the 50 cal to work because the barrel was like that pointed straight upwards. Um, you're not going to get it to work, man. Um, and so I checked myself out, you know, I, I, I looked, you know, I st still had 10 fingers, 10 toes. And uh, I was like, okay. And when I pulled the window open and I hollered out at the guys, they're like, Oh, crap, someone's still alive in there. Um, so then that's when we we started getting um, they came in. And of course, at the time, you know, you always had to check for secondary explosives because you didn't want to roll yourself into an ambush. So I went through and I started going through checking myself out. I tried getting out of the Humvee. The door was locked. Um, a fatal flaw in one of the Humvees, Humvee door modifications. If it got blown up, you couldn't open it from the inside. So they had a little tool that you could go through and use to unlock the doors, but I crawled in the back seat 
and uh, try to go through and open up the back door. That didn't work. And that was about the time when someone from the other truck opened up the front door to get me out and just panicked because he thought I got blown into the back seat. <laughs> and oh, he's like, geez. ah! And so he opens up the back door and I go through and I try to step out and I climb out of it and uh, put my foot on the ground. I just fall to the ground. They're like, yeah, dude, you're not walking anywhere. Um, the entire rest of the platoon was out. You know, they found the guy. Um, they actually went through. He <clears throat> found the guy. They detained him. Um, he wound up going to Iraqi prison. Um, and then me and my, the gunner, he was fine. He wasn't medevaced out. Uh, I was medevaced out along with my squad leader at the time. And so we were medevaced out when we got to Bagram Airfield. Yeah, Bagram Airfield. I got moved over to Germany because I was having problems walking. My uh, squad leader, he just got moved back to um, back to base because they're like, hey, you know, take some time, no major injuries, no issues, go back to base, keep doing your thing. Um, and so that's kind of, that, that, that's the gist of it. But it, you know, that whole time period took probably maybe a few hours, uh, maybe about six hours in total from the time we got hit to the time when I was sitting at a medevac base um getting told hey you know we're probably gonna fly you back to Germany tomorrow do they how does how does the medevac process well you fly out on a chopper or like how did they so what happened so where we were at when we got hit by the IED um we set up a landing zone for a helicopter for for medical evacuation here on a helicopter and you know, the helicopters are always on standby. There's always a crew ready to go to medevac someone out. And basically they went through, they put in the call and said, Hey, we had an IED blast. They flew, flew in. Um, they landed, they threw us on the bird. We had a flight medic there who was checking our stats and our vitals, making sure that we were good to go. Um, you know, and, um, you know, for, for, for us, because we weren't so bad, um, we didn't get like, you know, constant care and attention. Well, I mean, we got constant care and attention, but it was definitely, um, you know, we, we got off with some really uh, minor injuries. So they were more worried about, you know, concussions and, and internal things and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so they didn't have to deal with a lot of like, you know, massive bleeding or hemorrhaging or anything like that. So it was a little bit, a little bit more of a chilled ride. Um, definitely a lot less pressure on it. So, but they load us up on the bird they fly us to, and just like a medevac at, at any, you know, anytime you see the flights or the car accidents where they go through, they land, they put the people in the helicopter and they fly into the hospital. Same concept. It's just that the helicopter's black and the hospital was a beige canvas tent. <laughs> um, yeah. Not interesting. So, well, you're all good now walking around and stuff. No, <laughs> no lasting, no lasting injuries. I so, mean, I still have. Still have you know pain in my knee uh, periodically. Yeah, and it kind of goes through and and puts a damper on the evening and after some jujitsu and fencing, but uh, <laughs> other yeah. than that. Okay, so then, so then you go back the the third time, and is that kind of completely different to the second time? Yeah, I mean, again, so so we were in a, a more rural area. Um, on the second time, on the uh, on the third time, we were in in downtown downtown Baghdad, and that mm -hmm. was I mean that was a, a really crazy kind of kind of event. Uh, we were actually so the artillery unit um, was assigned an area 
to to their area of operation. And they wanted infantry people to kind of help support um, support them in doing infantry things. Um, not saying that that artillerymen are bad fighters or anything like that. It's just, you know, artillerymen are trained to shoot artillery. Infantry guys are trained to kick down doors and and you know, it's it's kind of like um, you know, shooter first, artillery second. Like yeah. our our first job was kicking down doors and, and taking care of things. So we were kind of augmenting some of these uh this artillery battalion. So they had a, a platoon of some infantry guys, some artillery guys, had one combat weatherman there. It's really weird. It's like, yeah, it's it's Iraq, the weather's hot. Um, or the weather is not so hot. Uh, um, there might be some rain. So, so he really wasn't doing too much. Um, but we were, we wound up being the main effort for that artillery battalion. And we were almost constantly on the move. We were constantly going from different base to different place. Um, you know, if they were like, oh yeah, hey, we need to go, go get that, go get this dude. We're like, okay, well, I guess we're going to go get that dude. Um, so, was, and of course, because it was in Baghdad, it was a, a an urban environment versus a, a really rural environment. Um, and it was just, it was just a much, much different kind of fight. Yeah. Did you ever go in and clear out, clear out a building, kick down a door, be it in, in that situation? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I mean, what, what is that? What is that like? Like you, cause you have I would imagine you get some sort of intel on who's there and kind of what the situation is, of, of course. Like, they're not going to send you in blind. But at the same time, you're about to turn the corner, you're about to kick down the door, and you was, like, what in your head, what is it like? Or are you, or are you just so, in autopilot? So, so again, you know, in those situations, like, and this is this is where you have, you have and, and again, I'm not – I was E4 specialist white kicking down doors in, in Afghanistan. I'm not a FBI hostage rescue or ranger or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. Hey, I got to train with some of those guys. So, um, you know, there are, there are guys out there who are way better at that stuff than I am. But for me personally, like you get to a point where you've trained with your guys and you've, you've done so much of it that the, the difference between, um, doing it for real and doing it in training is it, it's just a different color door. Um, you get up and you start going through and you start going through the motions, you start doing what you've rehearsed. Um, you just kind of, like you said, switch into autopilot and, and do what it is you have to do and respond to those scenarios and those, and those actions. Um, you know, and I've had really low dynamic entry doors where, Hey, we go through, we throw down the door, we come in there and we're like, Oh, surprise, we're here. Um, and then we, you know, then in situations like, yeah, no, we're not going to go through that door because <laughs> there are too many people shooting out of it. Uh, um, that, that would be a bad move. Um, you know, so in this, in those situations, you, you fall back onto your training, um, you fall back and you do. And, and I think that's with anything in life. Um, you put, get put in a stressful situation, you fall back onto whatever, your highest level of training is, you know? Yeah. So, well, I guess you had good training then. So in, in between the deployments, yeah. you're, you're basically just re re upping or not re upping, but you're rehashing all the, the training and the basic stuff that you've been doing for however long. And at this point is just fine tuning the environment that you're going to go in. At what point when you're in the States or not in a combat zone, 
when do you start to do things that are specific for the orders that you are about to get or have already gotten? Like, did you know beforehand what sort of environment you were going into? Like it was somebody like, Hey, you guys should start training in the urban environment. And you're like, Hmm, I think they're going to send us here. So, so normally it comes down to, you know, we, we do go through and we do get operational Intel briefs um, before we start going into an area. Um, as soon as the decision is made, maybe not as soon, because again, I was not at the top level saying, oh yeah. Right. Right. Um, so these, so these first three deployments that I went on, we weren't on the, um, what's called a, a global response force or quick reaction force. Um, we knew we was going. And so as soon as we get that Intel, we start having operational briefs. If the bird starts bothering you, let me know. I can, no, 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 you're good. You're good. Um, we start getting those operational and those Intel briefs and those things like that. And we start kind of saying, okay, well, let's start going through and, and doing a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, not abandoning any of our other skills, just kind of going into some of the other ones. Um, and that was kind of say, Hey, you know, we know we're going into this area. Let's study this area. Let's learn this area. Um, let's look at maps of this area so that when you say, Hey, we know we're going to be in this area, um, at you know, this is the most predominant feature. That way, should everything go kaput, um, I know just from the operational environment and the things that we've studied, I'm kind of in this area and I can get back to where it is I need to be. So that starts happening pretty much once they've gone through and they've said, hey, um, this is where we're going to send people. This is what they need to know to be functional in that area. Um, and that could be, you know, depending on, on the thing, six months out, you know, when, when I showed up to the 82nd coming from the 173rd, they already knew they were getting ready to deploy. So they had already mm. been starting to do those things. Um, now, when I got back from my third deployment, I got moved to a uh, brigade level, which is, so the, the idea is, is that um, units are broken down into brigade combat teams and they have um, brigades, battalions, companies, platoons, squads. I got moved to a operation section that supported our brigade level operations. And we went through and got put on, or were told we were going to go onto a global response force status, which means we were gonna get back to what the 82nd Airborne's mission is, which is being ready to leave at a moment's notice to get dropped into wherever to go do whatever. Um, mm. And so that's when that training kind of switched over to say, um, hey, you know, we're going to kind of get away from the idea that we're going to be um, hiking the mountains of Afghanistan or get away from the idea of we're going to be rolling through the deserts of Iraq and we're going to start training to jump in and secure airfields for follow on um, follow on forces to come in. And I got to see that at a much higher level because I was working in brigade operations and working in the operational battle centers and, and seeing the risk board move, as you would kind of say, yeah. um, that kind of planning and that kind of, of foresight. So gotcha. Does that kind of answer what you were going? It for? does. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it, it yeah. does. <clears throat> it does. It's interesting because you, when you are at the, the lower levels, you'd have no idea what the people are, are thinking for, various things and you just kind of hear things and they're like, Hey, do this. And then you're just, yeah. you have no idea why you're just doing stuff. Um, so when, okay. So you finish your third deployment and you're at the brigade level. 
And then at what point did you decide to, so how long are you doing stuff at the brigade, like the risk board? So, so, um, so at the brigade level, um, I was about two years. So we got mm -hmm. back, no, I guess I must've gotten back in 09 to 010. So I got out in 2012. Yeah. Um, I got moved to the brigade section at the early start of 2010. Um, or I'm sorry, 2011. Yeah. Early start of 2011. So year, year and a half, maybe, mm -hmm. um, that doesn't sound right. I'd have to pull up my records. So about a year and a half, maybe two years at brigade operations, um, going through and just seeing that kind of level of how are we planning these massive brigade movements? How are we moving people? How are we going to get from point A to point B to point C and, and get everything done? Um, sitting around listening to people plan and actually being able to say, hey, sir, maybe maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe there's another operation to, to or another way we could go about doing that. Um, and, and one of my biggest things, like, and this is where um, I had such a hard time finding work when I got out. I was an E4 in brigade operations level. After I got hurt, I had a hard time running. Um, and so my PT score kind of dropped down. And I was always right at that point where it's like, okay, you're not really failing your PT test, but you're not where we want it to be to make you an E5. So when I got moved to this brigade operations uh, section, I started going through and, and being responsible for the setup, maintenance, and managing of the tactical operations center, which is basically this big tent, the generators, the computers, the radios, and everything. And so what, what my job was is when the sergeant major was like, hey... I want to set this operation center up here. I would be like, okay, this is what we need to do it. And this is how we're going to do it and how to plan all of that stuff out saying, Hey, um, first we got to do this. First we got to do that. And then we got to do that. Uh, and okay, we're going to move it. Well, we need to do this. We need to break everything down, move it up. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And as an E4 directing like all these different people um, who some were above my pay grade, some were below my pay grade. It, it, it was crazy. Like I should not have been doing that. Um, it, it just, it was just one of those things I kind of fell into. Um, and because I was getting out, they're like, yeah, we're just going to let them roll with this for the next couple of years and, and let them do it. So, so when did you decide that you were getting out after the, after the injuries or after the third deployment? So uh, the big thing that happened with that is, is I, uh, I went through and I found out I was going to have a, a kid with mm. one of my ex-girlfriends. That's a whole other realm of story. The, the army stuff was fun, but when we started getting into the, the, the post army life, that was just even more crazy. Um, so I decided I was like, Hey, you know, my daughter was on the way. I wasn't married to, or in a relationship with her mother. And I was like, you know what? I, I want to be there for my kid. Um, I, I didn't want to have her growing up, you know, and I, I tell, you know, I tell, you know, now my, my three stepchildren as well, I was like, you can be mad at me for every reason in the world, but it won't be because I wasn't there. Um, yeah. So found out my ex-girlfriend was pregnant and was going to have this baby. Um, she would actually was in a relationship with a woman um, and, and was getting ready to marry a woman. Um, but Sounds uh, like friends. Yeah. So, so it was Ross off of friends. Yeah. Um, and I was like, you know what? I just, I want to make sure I'm there for my kid. 
Um, so I had the opportunity to like, listen, you know, you can re-enlist. Um, there's a couple of people who want you up at division level, or you can get out of the army. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to re-enlist. I'm going to get out of the army. I'm going to move back home, you know, and in, in, in retrospect, um, yeah, I think it was the best decision I could have made, um, knowing where I'm at right now. But at the time it made absolutely no sense, uh, cause I was getting out of the army. I had no place to live. Like my house was going to get foreclosed on because I didn't have any type of income because I was getting out of the army and my income was going to go away. I, all I had was a GED. Um, I didn't have a high school diploma. I didn't have any college work. I didn't have a security clearance either. So how I was, did you, how did that, how did you not have one? So it's just one of those, by the time they realized I should have had a security clearance, I was so close to getting out that I wouldn't have, if I had put in for it, I wouldn't have been around long enough to justify or to even make it through the security clearance process. That doesn't even, I mean, I understand the words that you're saying, Yeah. but how's how somebody messed that up? I mean, okay, well, that's all right. That's a different story for a different and, day. I'm yeah, I'm yeah. It's a different story for a different day. And and sometimes things fall through the cracks. Yeah. Um, oh, but I mean, honestly though, if I had a security clearance and I'd fell fallen onto some other job, you know, I'd have probably wound up on a different career path. Um, but you know, getting out and not having those things eventually led me to saying, Yeah, I need to make some changes in my life um in order to actually be able to support. Uh, my daughter and then my wife and, and the three kids that, you know, and are my stepkids, um, you know, my, my blended family. So it all worked yeah. out. Yeah, for sure. And last sort of question before we, before we wrap up, how big of an adjustment was it to go from military to civilian life for you? That. So I, 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 that's kind of a hard thing um, because, you know, when I was younger, I was doing Silver Patrol. So I, I kind of really, like, I feel like I kind of, and then now, you know, current career, I, I'm still around the military. Mm -hmm. um, it was an adjustment, but I don't think it was like a, a, I think it just took me some time. And I really think that two year process of, of going through and realizing, yeah, hey, um, these little jobs aren't working. I remember, so like the first, first job I had out of the Marine or out of the Marine, um, that's what I get for working around the Marine Corps for too long. Um, first job I had out of the army was actually Chipotle. Um, mm. and I worked at Chipotle for 12 hours. <laughs> and that's it. Only that's 12 it. hours. Only 12 hours. They scheduled uh -huh. me for a double shift my first day. And I, you know, I just, I got really good at, at throwing burrito. I made um, I know how to make their chips so I can make uh, authentic Chipotle chips uh, with the salt and the lime. And I'm really good at rolling burritos. You know, I, tr I try to learn those skills quickly, um, but I, they scheduled me for a double my first day. And then they're like, hey, you know, come back and uh, in the morning and we'll keep rolling with this. I said, OK. So I showed up in the morning <laughs> and there was just this mountain of stuff. And the guy's like, all right, go ahead, start putting it up. And I'm like. Nah, man, I actually took my shirt off and my hat off in the store and I handed it to the dude. And I said, this just ain't for me. Um, he's like, 
okay. And so I'll go walking out of the store with no shirt on and, <laughs> and be like, yeah. And, and that was kind of like, you know, yeah, if I, if I'm not comfortable with something, you know, I have the opportunity to say no, um, which was not an opportunity or a luxury I had in the army. Uh, and that was kind of like the biggest kind of um, change that I had to go with. Interesting. Well, that's a hell of a way to end this. You know, we've been chatting for an hour and a half already. Time has yeah. flown. I appreciate the time. I know you got birds to take care of and yeah. other things. Uh, any last nickels before we get out of here? I, not that I can think of. You know, I, 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 you know, if you ever want me to come back and show you the second half of the story of uh, of the the following years of the army, um, you know, I'd be more than happy to. Yeah, for sure. We'll we'll get you back on at some point, hundred percent. All right, guys, we'll see you for the next one. Peace.